Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. This morning, we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of John, and we're going to pick it up where we uh, left off last week, and we are going to look at verse 39 through 47. You remember, and I say this as review most weeks, but in John 20, 31, the end of the book of John, John gives us the reason for which he wrote what we call the Gospel of John, the account of Jesus according to the Apostle John. In John 20, 31, it reminds us that these are written so that you may believe. That's why we call the series Believe. These are written. Everything that preceded, he said, I put these down on paper and ink, quill uh, and, and parchment, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And it isn't just an intellectual believing, but by believing, you may have life in his name. So it's more than just a tip of the hat towards Jesus, but it's a belief that is life-changing. It's a belief that has a, a transformation of this life of knowing Jesus Christ and committing our life to him. So John tells us at the end why he's put these things down as a record, but also as a way that people can know Jesus and come to saving faith in him. Uh, Last week, we came into uh, John chapter 5, and of course the account there in the beginning of John chapter 5 is Jesus encountering the man at the pool of Bethesda, the lame, crippled, paralyzed man and the miracle of the healing that took place there. Now, when you read John chapter 5, and it is a, it is a lengthy chapter, and John chapter 6 is a long chapter, so uh, John uh, has a lot to, to give us. But John chapter 5, when we come to John chapter 5, it's uh, natural to look at that chapter and say, oh, the lame man, the healing, the, the miracle, that's, the, that's the, the main point of that chapter. And it certainly is significant But I'm not sure it's the main point of the chapter because if you uh, read on, and we alluded to it a uh, a little bit last week, if you read on there in John chapter 5, you'll see that the reaction or response of those religious leaders, sometimes John just uses the term the Jews. And that, you know, in that day, there was two primary religious groups. We might call them denominations, but uh, they didn't call them that. But you had the Pharisees. They were kind of your, uh, they were the defenders of the law. Uh, Some would say the the legalists, the legal, uh, they were considered, they were considered the ones that were defenders over the legalities of the law to honor God. Then you had another group that was the Sadducees. They, we might say they were the more liberal group. Together, many of them formed what was called the Sanhedrin. That was the kind of what we might would call the Supreme Court of, of, of the Jews. They didn't rule Israel, but they handled the uh, civil, legal affairs, made big decisions. And the Pharisees and Sadducees really did not trust each other, let alone like each other, because one thought the other one was too legalistic, and the other group thought the other was too liberal. Some things haven't changed, right? So, uh, so Jesus in John chapter 5 
we know, uh, comes to this man, and he's paralyzed. He's laying there, and Jesus asks him the question, do you want to be well? Well, duh, of course. I mean, he's, you know, years he's been laying there, and he immediately begins to cast blame of why he can't get to the water when it's stirred, and there was apparently this pool of water that was stirred by a well of spring of some sort, and a kind of a myth tradition had resulted where superstition really had resulted where they said, well, when that spring of water stirs the water up, uh, it's an angel. And if you can get to the water in time, you will be healed. So remember this area, these, this uh, portico where this pool was, was not part of the temple. It was a total, it was near the temple, but it was a separate location and it wasn't part of the temple. And this wasn't part of Judaism per se, but it was where a lot of infirmed and sick people and lame people were gathered. And so when Jesus told him to take up his mat, his bed, and walk, rise and walk, uh, he began to do so. And it was a great miracle, and he was very excited. And you would think that the religious ones, the Pharisees that were kind of there beginning to follow Jesus, that's the thing when we come to chapter 5 of John, first four chapters, we see kind of a general acceptance, uh, you know, indifference maybe a little bit towards Jesus. But when we come to chapter 5, all of a sudden now, we see things begin to shift. And all of a sudden now, there are, there's tension. And Jesus begins to confront, as well as the Pharisees, confronting Jesus. And we begin to see the beginnings of the hostility and the antagonism towards Jesus and his followers. And so these religious folks are watching this, and they immediately say, you know, here is a guy, what was it, how many, was it 38 years? I should know that, right? Uh, and he, uh, he was healed, and he's walking, and he's leaping, and uh, his legs, you know, he, it, you know, it's an amazing miracle. And what is the thing that these guys want to know when they confront him? They say, why are you, why did you pick up your mat, uh, and you are, because they, it was on, the one thing that chapter 5 makes sure you understand is that Jesus did this healing on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not Sunday. The Sabbath means seventh. The Jewish Sabbath was on Saturday, the seventh. And so that was a very much part of the whole uh, obedience to the law of the Jews. And so they wanted to know, why are you... Because they equated any activity like that to be work. And you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. And they immediately bypassed the fact that this guy was now healed. But what were they upset about? That he broke one of their rules. It really had nothing to do with the Sabbath. But it was the way that they misused and misinterpreted and applied a lot of traditions regarding the Sabbath and what you could do and not do. And they had a very elaborate uh, system and laws to that. And they immediately wanted to know, who told you to do this? And here's the amazing thing, is the guy didn't even know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> now, the, the story, really, when you read chapter 5, the lame man certainly is a major part of that. But the real activity that's going on there in chapter 5 is Jesus pressing against the phony religion of Israel, and especially the, the leadership there. 
that they were more concerned about their traditions, not the word of God, because they had distorted the word of God. They were more concerned about their traditions than they were the fact that this man had experienced an amazing miracle and has changed his life. They weren't interested in that. They wanted to go try to find who this guy was that was going around telling people to do activity on the Sabbath. That was all they were interested in. They were the Sabbath police, if you will. And so we come to chapter 5 in verses 39 through 47. We're going to find a little bit of Jesus confronting these religious leaders, these religious Jews, the Pharisees, that we are primarily involved here. And he was opposing them, and they, or they were opposing him, and they were unwilling, as we see all throughout the New Testament, they were unwilling to come to saving faith in Christ. Now, there were certain ones that seemed to express at different times. Nicodemus certainly is the most prominent uh, Pharisee that, that uh, if you read later on his life, suggests that he came to a faith and understanding about Christ. But you could boil Jesus' indictment against these Pharisees because of their phony religious attitudes down to one word, and that's the word pride. They were proud of their religious knowledge and their attainment. You know, pride really is the root of all sins, isn't it? Because pride has what letter right in the middle of it? I, pride, me. Proverbs 16.8 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Matthew 23.12 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Also Proverbs 29.23, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Pride makes us think that we know what's best for us, so we rebel against God who made us and knows us better than anybody. Pride says, well, I know what I should do with my own life. I know how to manage things. Pride deceives us into thinking that we can be good enough to earn heaven, to get to heaven. Pride says, you know, when you compare me against, you know, a serial killer or somebody like that, I think I'm pretty good. I hope I'm pretty good. I hope I'm better than that, right? You know, pride makes me think better spiritually about myself. Pride often will cause us to put a good outward front to impress others by how spiritual we are. Pride was at the root of what was hindering these religious folks from believing and receiving the ministry of Jesus as their Messiah. And the thing about religious pride is not only is it self-destructive, but I'll just say church folks, because in our vernacular, these were the church, they weren't a part of a church, but our religious folks, we're ch it's church folks, is that that religious pride is also very unattractive to those who might be open to consider Jesus. And the one of the deterrents often is among many things that serve as obstacles, but sometimes the deterrent in some people's lives, sad to say, is other professing Christians 
who exhibit a phony pride of religiosity that just stinks. And they don't want anything to do with that kind of pride. You know, Christians are really good about talking a good talk, right? Okay, a couple of us agree with that. Let me, let me try that again. Christians are good at talking the talk sometimes. You know, now, again, don't get distracted by me using this in illustration, but I remember years ago that uh, there was this um, monument built for the Ten Commandments outside of a courthouse that somebody had built, uh, I believe, in Alabama. And again, I'm not arguing yay or nay about that. But Christians get all riled up and stirred up over the threat of that monument being taken down instead of, when you read the statistics, of how many Christians are actually living the commandments. You see, it's easy to get our religious fur flying over some cause when in reality we reek with hypocrisy. And we wonder why the culture doesn't take the church very seriously. And so this is not too far from where we live, a prideful attitude that can deter people. And so the title, my uh, somewhat little pivot here of the title of today's message is entitled, which I want to see here in a minute what I titled it, How to Keep People... Because I thought of several different things, but how to keep people from Jesus. And guess what? The Pharisees give us some, some tips, and I say this sarcastically, of how to keep people from Jesus. Now, we certainly know that God is sovereign, and no human being can totally keep anybody from Jesus, but he certainly uses means and people, doesn't he? He uses influences. So that's kind of what I'm, where I'm going with this. How to keep people from Jesus. And one of the things that, that Jesus noted about the Pharisees is they certainly were not um, attracting people to the God of Israel. Okay, They weren't certainly advocates of Jesus. But they actually were not only not... Um, and the scripture up there should be, sorry, I have that wrong up there, but the scripture should be right in your handout there, so don't ignore that slide. But um, the Pharisees, their religious uh, attitudes were not attracting anybody. In fact, they were actually hindering people. Interesting scripture that Jesus uh, mentions in Matthew twenty-three twenty-seven, where he says to them, Woe to you, scribe, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees. Scribes were kind of the legal lawyers that were part of the Pharisaical uh, community. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, graves, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. What is he saying? He's saying, well, first of all, you know the law... The Jewish law was very specific in being around or touching or coming within a certain feet of a dead body. The law has stipulations because that would make you unclean. Notice the connection of what Jesus is saying here. You are like decorated tombs that people that get around you do not know that your death 
but you have a you have a facade of beauty, a facade of religion, but when they get around you, guess what? They are corrupted and unclean by just being around you. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're like whitewashed graves that people innocently get into your presence and they're unclean because they've been around the corruption of death that exudes from your hypocrisy. Pretty strong indictment. But Jesus tells us in this same chapter that we didn't look at last week in verse 16. I'm not sorry, in the same chapter, Matthew 5.16. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, in the same way, talking to his disciples, he said, let your light shine before others. Let your light, what is the light we have? Certainly not self-generated light. We reflect the light, don't we? Reflect the light of Christ. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Not your good works and prideful, self-generated works, but they may see the goodness of what God is doing and has done in your life in order that they would give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to be lights accurately reflecting the light of Jesus and not unmarked graves. So if you want to keep people from the truth of Jesus, here's four ways, four practices and tips the Pharisees might help you do that. And I hope you don't take their advice, okay? Number one, number one advice, how to keep people from Jesus, is number one, impress others by your knowledge of the Bible. Impress others by how much you know about the Bible. Using the Bible to show off or impress rather than to grow in humility is certainly not a way that is going to draw people to the truth. Jesus said in verse 39 and 40 of John 5, He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the Scriptures, that what? Bear witness about me. The Scriptures bear witness. They testify about me. Verse 40, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Look, the Jewish leaders and rabbis, the Pharisees, one thing that nobody could ever indict them on is their knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures. Not always accurate in the application but the tenacity and the dedication, memorizing large portions of the Scripture that, that by the time a child, uh, a boy, was you know, 12 years of age, uh, that large portions of the Torah, in fact, maybe the entire Torah, which is the first five books of our Bible, the first five books of uh, Moses, uh, would, have, would be memorized. The way that, that scribes, when they copy different texts and and passages on the parchment. It wasn't just, oh, I made a mistake, tear it up, throw it away. It was a very sacred way that they handled the Scripture. But the problem that Jesus notes in that verse and in this, se this section is that the problem was they took great self-pride in what they knew. They took great pride in what they knew. Later in John 9, when we get to it, 
we see that Jesus healed a, a man that was born blind. And he argued with the Jewish leaders because they wanted to know who did this because they didn't believe that he could do such a miracle. And he began to profess them what he knew about Jesus. And they said, and you see a little bit of this pride in John 9, 34, they answered this blind man, these Jewish religious folks, they answered him and said, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out like, who do you think you are to lecture us? He just encountered amazing miracle of Jesus opening his blind eyes. And they were like, you couldn't teach us anything. Who do you think you are? You're born in sin. Well, here's a news flash. They were born in sin just like everybody else was born in sin. But they said, who are you to teach us? Jesus confronts their pride when he says in verse 41 and 42 of John 5, he adds this. He said, I do not receive glory from people but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I do not receive glory from other people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus is contrasting his love of God, his humility, with their religious pride. When he says, I do not receive glory from man, he's saying, look, unlike you, I'm not a man pleaser. I'm not out to get people to be impressed with who I am. I'm not a man pleaser. I'm not seeking everybody's praise to build up my own image. You see, Jesus is one that he tells us in this chapter, John 5, 19, that he always lived to walk and to be pleasing to the Father. He always walked to make sure that his life, his words were consistent in glorifying his Father. And it wasn't about him. Verse 19, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When Jesus was on earth in that high priestly prayer, he could pray in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He accomplished, he glorified God. That was not what these religious folks were about. They wanted people to be impressed by their knowledge of Scripture, not to glorify God, but to glorify their own self. And notice in verse 42, Jesus says, but I know. I know, I know you, and you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus, being God, a very God himself, says, I know your heart. That you don't, you give this impression of your knowledge, your impression of how stalwart you are as godly men, but I know you. You can't fool me. You might fool everybody else, but you can't fool me. I know you, and I know that you don't love God, and if you don't love God, you certainly aren't going to seek His glory. What are some reality checks for us? Let me suggest a few little reality checks. One, are you studying the Scriptures at all? Jesus did not rebuke them because they were ignoring the Word of God. No, that wasn't the problem. They were dedicated. But could He say that to some of us in this room that aren't even 
don't even pick up and read the Bible in a week, in a month. Maybe the only time you encounter Scripture is on the screen on a Sunday morning. You're not engaging with the Scriptures. So one, are you even studying the Bible at all? And if you are studying the Scriptures, are they revealing Jesus Christ to your soul? Are you growing in more relationship with who Jesus is? Are they drawing you more to Christ? You see, the ultimate point of being encountering in the Word of God is to know God more. And how has God made Himself known is He has given His Son, Jesus Christ. And if it is not causing you to grow more Christ-like, if it's not causing you to be more uh, exhibiting the traits of Jesus and loving and compassion and grace, I know people and I've known people and probably one of these, I probably was one of these people that could grow and excel in the Word of God and somehow there was a disconnect in my attitudes towards people around me. That's something we all have to watch for. Something we always have to be concerned with. Thirdly, is your study of the Bible leading you to greater humility or greater pride? Is it leading you to grow in a humility of dependence? Is it enabling you to grow in a, in a, in a compassionate, heartfelt, to where as I compare myself to the Holy God? You remember in Isaiah 6? You remember in Isaiah when he encountered and he had that vision of God? Holy, holy, holy. What was his response? Wow, I must be pretty impressive that God would reveal himself to me. No, it said, he said he was undone at the encounter of being around and being in the very presence of God, the holiness of God. Does the Word of God, as you study, as you read, does it humble you as you realize the amazing grace of God? If the Word of God that you're taking in and digesting does not continually cause you to be amazed at the grace of God, then there's a disconnect there. But if you start thinking that you're better than other Christians because you know a little theology and you delight in proving yourself right and everybody else is wrong, I'm not talking about being doctrinally astute and not knowing the Word of God and having doctrine. Doctrine is not a dirty word. People want to sound real spiritual and pious and say, oh, I don't want to care. I don't care about doctrine. Just give me Jesus. And you've heard me say this before. Who you say Jesus is will determine your doctrine of Jesus. When you say, just give me Jesus, what Jesus do you want? You want the Mormon Jesus? Do you want the Jehovah's Witness Jesus? Do you want the Santa Claus Jesus of American Christianity? What kind of Jesus... Your doctrine, and your doctrine that's built upon Scripture, being like those Bereans in Acts 17, to determine what is truth and what it lines up with the Word of God, I'm thankful that God has not left us wandering around in the dark, but that God has given us a witness and a testimony, a measuring stick to measure what is truth and what is untruth. Studying the Bible should lead you to more humility and graciousness. And your study of the Bible should increase your love of God more and more. J.I. Packer 
who wrote Knowing God, said the purpose of theology is doxology. What is doxology? You ever seen the doxology? Doxology means worship. All theology is worship. All theology, which is the study of God, should cause you to be like Isaiah there in, Acts, in, in, uh, in Isaiah 6, the, that what he saw in the holiness of God, that you are undone in the very presence that you can't help but worship this holy God. That the knowledge of God shouldn't increase your pride, shouldn't increase your arrogance, shouldn't be a club that you go around batting people on the head because of what they don't know or what, you know, what they say, but it should lead you to a humility of worship and not an arrogance. So don't try to impress people with your Bible knowledge. That's not going to impress them. You know, the old saying, people don't care how much you know till they find out how much you care. What kind of life and light are you giving out? Secondly, if you want to keep people from Jesus, worship a God, and I have that in quotes, worship a God of your own personal preferences. Making God to be what you want Him to be rather than what Scripture declares Him to be. John 5, verse 43. Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another, if another comes in his own name, you receive him. I'm coming in the name of my Father, Yahweh, I'm coming in the name of my Father, God, a very God. I'm coming in His name and you reject, but yet if some bloke comes in off the street claiming to have an impressive resume of knowing God, oh, you're, you're rolling out the red carpet for Him. Jesus came in His Father's name, which means that He came in His Father's authority to proclaim who the Father is. And what, he, what I think the implication is we see as we continue to walk through John chapter 5 is that Jesus coming in the authority, remember when Jesus, when different ones would hear Jesus teach and they were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had, say it, authority, authority. He taught as one who had authority and because he had authority, he could say you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And when he's, he's not rewriting the law, he's rewriting the perversion that the law became in the hands of these religious hypocrites who wanted to turn the Word of God into a magnifying glass to their own self-piety and holiness. He's making the correction God's word always that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind, all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. Some people like to say, well, the New Testament presents a God of love. The Old Testament presents a God of wrath and anger. That is baloney. You don't read, you don't have a, you don't read your Old Testament. Look at the life of Israel. Is that a God of anger or, or in compassion? Both. A loving God does not mean, even in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12 says that a father disciplines his sons. What is discipline for? It is restorative. I'm thankful for the restorative discipline God has done in my own life. That was not when I disciplined my children imperfectly as a human 
Father, it was meant to restore them and point them in correct behavior. God, who is infinitely greater than any human father, does that in our own lives. It is the greatest act of compassion. So don't equate and overemphasize the love of God from the justice and the righteousness of God. But as Jesus was the light, the true light, you know what light does? It exposes things. That's why when you don't dust in a while, keep the blinds shut. Everything looks great. But a minute you put the light out, you turn the, open the shades, you're thinking, I just dusted last week and look at this place. Light does what? It exposes. It reveals. What did Jesus come to do? He came as the light to reveal, to expose. And one of the things that he's exposing is this phony, false religion that gave itself the persona of knowing God when in reality they were far from it. You see, they wanted, they wanted that sense of importance. They wanted that sense where people could, could see their, their holiness and they really were not worshiping the true God. They had formed a God that fit their own image. They had formed a God that rewarded them, that was pleased with them when they checked all the boxes and did all the rules. You see, the people in Jesus' time had come to believe in a Messiah that was not the suffering Messiah that Isaiah and the other prophets prophesied about. Remember Peter when Jesus spoke about going to the cross and Peter said, never, not on my watch. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're not interested in the things of God. What a terrible rebuke. You see, they thought that the Messiah that was to come was going to be a political Messiah that was going to deliver them from Rome and to uh, take care of all their problems and uh, pander to their tastes. And they wanted a, a Messiah that was going to uh, be kind of a, a reservoir of just making their life wonderful and happy. And certainly the true Messiah that will come will bring everlasting peace. But they were wanting it more for their own selfish desires. I'll give you an example that we'll look at uh, if not next week, in a couple of weeks. And that's the next chapter in John chapter 6, which is the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the multitude. And you remember that once Jesus provided them bread and food to eat, what was their response? Well, it tells us in verse 14 of John 6, when the people saw the sign, the sign of the miracle of multiplication of the food, when they saw the sign that he had done, that's when they said, this indeed the prophet. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving, and they saw it. I kind of have it edited for you up there. When the people saw the sign, they were about to come and take Jesus by force to do what? To make him king. King for life. Why? Because this is the best government program we could ever imagine. We want a king like this that will just supply us the free goodies and food forever. We want to elect that guy. 
I don't know what political party is on, but I'm in that party. Right? That's, that's human nature, isn't it? We do it today. We vote for the one that promises oftentimes the most stuff. Listen, I, I'll be honest with you, I have a, still a student loan. And my flesh likes that forgiveness program. I'm not going to lie. I know all the... I've been paying on it, so I will pay on it. But I'll be honest with you, I thought, woo, that'd be kind of nice to have that thing until you realize the implications of that kind of nonsense. No free lunch, is there? You see, Jesus, unlike these folks that loved... See, they weren't interested in worshiping God. They weren't interested in the true God. In fact, Romans 3 says there are none who seek after God. What did they want? They wanted a God that only propped up their phony imagery. They wanted a God that supported their own self-grandizement of self-importance. And Jesus was not going to be a part. He came to honor and reflect God. He, wasn't, he did not come to ride a wave of popularity. He came to exhibit the true God and not just gain a following. Remember the temptation that Satan, to show you how rooted this is in human behavior, the second temptation in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 of Jesus in the desert, the second temptation that Satan sought to come against Jesus, he said, if you will just leap off the pinnacle of the temple. Okay, you don't want to turn the stones into bread? No problem. Just leap off the pinnacle of the temple because, and he misquoted scripture, the angels will capture you as you fall, as you come down. And so the implication is when the people see you floating down, being uh, held in the arms of angels and put your feet on the temple square, Jesus, they'll know you're the Messiah. Just think about it, Jesus. No suffering. No hardship. No cross. Yeah. And no salvation. You see, Jesus wasn't about that. And that's why he pushed back. But we know the Bible tells us that in the latter days... The church, sadly, will be characterized and filled with groups of people that are forming their own gods to suit their own preferences. In the chapter, Jesus speaks about his second coming in Matthew 24. He writes in verse 11, And many false prophets, speaking about the end, the day, the, the, the atmosphere, the world prior to his coming, that one of the characteristics is that many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Listen, the characteristic of the end of the age, I don't have the date. I left it at home. Sorry, I'll bring it next week. I don't have the date of when that is. But I know this, we are further ahead than when these words were written. So we must be towards the end of the end of the end of the days. But the characteristic 
of the quote-unquote end-time church, and I use that in quotation marks, is not going to be marked by this tremendous upswing of revival that will sweep the world. Yes, there will be pockets of God's compassion and grace and, and works of revival that take place, but the characteristic of the church, if you will, the assemblage, is not going to be marked by fidelity towards God, is going to be marked by falsehood and a rejection of truth. Why should we be shocked when in our own generation, or maybe the generation of your, uh, your parents, some of you that are older, that denominations that were founded and once uh, earmarked as gospel, Bible-believing, God-honoring churches and denominations now are spending their yearly assembly debating the ordination of homosexual ministers. Actually, they're not debating it anymore, by the way. Now they're moving on to transgender. And you think, where? Where did they go? Where did they go wrong? Well, I'll tell you where they went wrong. To oversimplify, it's when they rejected the foundation of the Word of God as the bedrock of truth. The church does not, unlike Roman Catholicism, the church does not stand over Scripture. We stand under Scripture. We submit to Scripture. You know, when you look at some of the old churches, the old gospel preaching churches of the 1700s, 1800s, back in the day, you ever notice how oftentimes they, their pulpits, the preacher uh, would have to walk up steps to the pulpit, and the pulpit... Uh, podium was over the people. And there probably was some acoustical reasons. They didn't have sound system. You know one of the reasons that what that symbolized? It symbolized that we are under the Word of God. It wasn't just haphazard, like steeples. It wasn't like some guy sitting around a deacon's meeting and said, hey, let's put this pointy thing on the building. And everybody said, hey, I love those pointy things. You know what the steeple was to do? It was to point to God. A lot of churches ought to take those steeples and turn them upside down. Because their churches aren't glorifying God. They ought to turn them upside down. You see, the world, your neighbors, your friends, we all have a predisposition to create God in our own image instead of what the Bible says, that he made man in his own image. We want to create a God that is going is is to coddle and, and support my sinful preferences. I don't want a God that Jeremiah, the prophet, spoke about. Read some of these prophets. They were not up for man, men of the year. They spoke harshly. They're, they're oftentimes, their offices as prophets were short-lived. But they spoke against, not necessarily just pagans. You know who Jeremiah was speaking against? He was speaking against his own people and the apostasy. That means the wholesale rejection of God's people against God. And what did they do to him? They put him in jail. Paul said, in 2 Timothy 4, 
from the New Living Translation, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4. He says, for a time is coming. He's writing to his protege, Timothy. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow what? Their own desires, their own preferences. And they will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want them to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. They want people to tell them every day is a Friday. They want people that are just going to be positive. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about the holiness of God. Don't talk about all those archaic, old-fashioned, fundamentalist, old-school, oh, no. In other words, don't tell people the truth. Create a God built around your own preferences. And now we've got churches that are created around people's own preferences. How do we apply this to us? Look, when you're reading the Bible, make sure you read all of it and not just the parts you like. The Bible's not a buffet. I know Paul said he buffets his body, but it's not buffet his body, all right? So I know some that's your life verse at the Golden Corral, but... If you only read the parts about God's love but skip the parts about His holiness, judgment, sovereignty, guess what? You're going to fall into error. When you're looking for a church to attend, look for a pastor. Hopefully, I'm a little bit, my goal is to be a pastor who teaches the Bible and teaches about God and Christ and the whole counsel of God's Word. Avoid churches. They're always got their finger up in the wind to see which way the cultural trends are. You know, we have churches that get caught up in such fads. Fads. Fads come and go. But I've made an observation in my limited time here on earth is the churches that are always chasing after the fads seem to come and go. But the churches that commit themselves to the steady commitment to the Word of God are able to withstand the worst storms of the culture. Thirdly, if you want to keep people from Jesus, impress them by what you know about the Bible. Design a God of your own personal preferences and maybe their own personal preferences. That certainly won't interest them in Jesus, who is a truth speaker. But thirdly, Seek admiration from others for your spirituality. You want to impress other people and deter them away from knowing the humbleness and the grace of Jesus? Then you just seek self-promotion and admiration from others for your own spirituality. Using religion to try to impress others outwardly rather than seeking God on a heart level. Well, not only will it keep you from Jesus, but it will certainly discourage others. Look at what he says in verse 44. He says, how can, speaking of ability, how can you believe 
when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Remember Jesus in Matthew 6, 5, 6, and 7, that's the Sermon on the Mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, those three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and chapter 6, I believe, that's when he warns them and says, don't be like the hypocrites, i.e., the religious folks, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Don't be like them when you pray. He said they like to pray where everybody can hear how spiritually pious they are. I remember an old preacher gave me some good advice. If you ever notice, the Bible speaks of short prayers in private, short prayers in public, and long prayers in private. He says, go into your closet where nobody's going to pat you on the back by how great you've laced together your King James language in prayer. There's nothing wrong against King James. I'm just saying the Victorian English, you know, when you talk, you don't say, oh, thou, wonderful, sherry, divine woman of God. Is there any milk left in this? No. You speak to God. Now, again, be careful. Get away from this man upstairs derogatory language. You see, we go to the other extreme where we have a, a triviality. We have a triviality towards God. He's not the God to help you get a good parking space at Walmart. But that's the way we trivialize God. We've trivialized the God. Of, again, it goes back to a God who's going to suit my own preferences and fit, fit my life instead of my life fitting his. And so Jesus says, you are so focused on getting glory from others, you, are, you totally could care less about the glory that is to be like God. Jesus in Matthew, to go back to Matthew a little bit, in, uh, verse, in chapter 23, verse 5 through 7, he unmasked this religious hypocrisy of those that love the admiration. He said, everything they do is for show. On their arms they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with long tassels that spoke of their rank and their uh, religiosity. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and the seats of honor in the synagogues. They like preachers, I always say this, who like to have their own personal parking spot in front of the church. Now you little axe to grind there. Do you hear me, you guy? I always tell, say, look, if you're doing your job, you'll be one of the first people there and you'll be one of the last people to leave and you won't have to worry about a parking place. That's just free. That's a little pet peeve there. All right. Verse 7, they love, to receive, they love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. I don't use reverend on anything. That's a man-made concocted title. I think the only time I use it is when I sign a wedding certificate, uh, you know, license or something, because that's kind of a cultural thing. I don't want people calling me reverend. There's only one who's revered. And that's God. Ministers are servants of God, but they love to be called rabbi. And Jesus says in that same chapter, verse 25, he said, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup in their ceremonial washing of the dish, but inside you are filthy, Full of greed and self-indulgence. 
You see, their pride reeked, and they loved to be, have this, this facade that people thought that they were so spiritual and they were so godly. William Barclay, who is a okay commentator, uh, he's wishy-washy on the miracles, but every once in a while he gets something right, which I use. But again, I always say a broken clock is right twice a day, so every once in a while somebody will. But he does have a quote that I thought was worth repeating in his little daily study Bible on the Gospel of John. Listen to what he writes. Great wisdom here. William Barclay, so long as a man measures himself against his fellow men, he will be well content. But the point is not, am I as good as my neighbor? The point is, am I as good as God? What do I look like to him? So long as we judge ourselves by human comparisons, there's plenty of room for self-satisfaction. And that kills faith. For faith is born of the sense of need. But when we compare ourselves with Jesus Christ, we are humbled to the dust. And then faith is born. For there is nothing left to do but trust to the mercy of God. You see, the antidote to the deadly sin of self, pride, hypocrisy, and all that wanting to put on a good facade so people think you're more spiritual than you are is to get with God and say, God, give me a humble spirit. God, you know what I'm really like. You know, and I think that's the reason sometimes we will oftentimes avoid private personal prayer. Because we might be able to fake each other. It's hard to fake God who knows your heart. Every time I go to prayer, God keeps putting his finger on that one area, and I get, I get tired of it. Well, guess what? He's going to keep putting his finger on that one area until you get it right. Everybody else may play games with you, but God doesn't. The psalmist said, 139, Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts. My thought afar off, you comprehend my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Look at this, verse 4. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. There's a final way that you can keep people from being drawn to Christ. The Pharisees give us one final tip. And it's kind of interrelated to these. But take personal pride in your religious performance. Be proud of how spiritual you are. Take personal pride in your religious performance. Jesus said in John 5 something very, very telling about these folks. Now remember, these, the Pharisees, they were the guardians of the law. Who is attributed as the law uh, I don't want to say the lawgiver, God is the lawgiver, but the, the, the recorder of the law is epitomized in what man, what person? Oh, come on, people. Moses! Come on. Remember the flannel graph? Moses! Look what he says in verse 45 through 47. They prided 
that they were the, the guardians of Moses and the law. But notice what Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who does accuse you, and that's who? He says, Moses. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Do you see the irony of what Jesus says there? The Jewish leaders, these religious elitists who took pride in their spirituality, took pride and loved the admiration of other people, and who by their very definition of their religious group were the adherents and the guardians of the law of Moses, the protector. You're not sure how to keep the Sabbath. We'll give you 18 volumes of rules on how to keep the Sabbath down to even up dividing up your herbs and seeds that you can't even do that on the Sabbath because that's work. We will help you reach new spiritual heights by our rules, by our traditions, even though it's certainly departed from the Word of God. These Jewish leaders claimed to be the caretakers, the guardians, the protectors of Moses and the law. And Jesus said, you think that because you admire and adhere to the teachings and the law of Moses, you're safe? In fact, it's going to be Moses himself that stands in judgment against you because Moses spoke of me. You think, well, where did he do that? Where did he do that? Remember, just in a cursory way, the disciples understood this. In John 1.45, when Philip found Nathanael and said to him, he says, we have found him, the Messiah, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Luke 24.27, Jesus resurrected. I love this passage. Jesus came, on those, came upon those two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him. And as he began to speak with them, it says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses, what is he saying? And beginning with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, we'd say, and beginning with the Old Testament, he interpreted to them. He directed them in all the, the, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What is the, not just Moses, not just the law of Moses, but the entire testimony of the Old Testament points to Jesus. That's why there will be no excuse for these folks, because he said, but Moses spoke about me. And it's Moses that's going to be your judge. You see, when you begin to understand and see how Jesus is the central character of your Old Testament, then the Word of God will be transformed when you begin to see. In fact, the testimony and the promise of Jesus starts in Genesis 3.15. Remember, in the middle of the darkest hour of humanity, 
God promises one that would be at the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. That's the first prophetic word of the Messiah that was to come in Genesis 3.15. That's in, that's in the law of Moses. What about God's clothing of Adam and Eve there in Genesis with animal skins, a picture of an animal sacrifice, a picture of the future sacrifice that required blood that would cover our sins through the death of the Lamb of God. We see that pictured there in the garden with Adam and Eve and being clothed. They Remember, they tried to clothe themselves. But God changed their wardrobe. And in the changing of that wardrobe with animal skins, an animal had to be sacrificed. What about God's promise to Abraham that in his seed, speaking prophetically of Christ, all the nations would be blessed? Speaking of Jesus. This is all in the law of Moses. The Torah. His command to Abraham. To sacrifice his son. Was a picture. Of the sacrifice of the son. That God the father would render. One day. Upon Christ. You see the law of Moses. Would stand. In direct. Judgment. Let me give you four tests real quick. Take all these and apply them down to ourselves. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Let me ask you these questions. Here are four tests. Examine how you use the Bible. Is it to impress others? Or is it causing you to grow in humility to be more like God? How do you use the Bible? Secondly, do you gladly embrace who God is as revealed in all of Scripture rather than who you may want Him to be? Are you always trying to massage and mold a God into your own image? Well, I know the Bible says this, but I, my truth is this. There is no my truth. Just, not like, there's, just like there's not your rulers and your math. There is truth. And there's truth about God. Do you embrace the God of Scripture or God of your own imagination and preferences? By the way, you know what that's called when you make a God to your own image, don't you? It's called idolatry. Thirdly, ask yourself whether you are seeking glory from others as opposed to seeking to please God in your heart that's warm. Do you enjoy the admiration and respect? You know, James gives a warning to those who teach, doesn't he? To be careful about teachers, lest you be exalted above measure. And fourth, examine, test yourself whether you take pride in your outward religious performance rather than boasting in Christ and about the cross. Am I exalting and glorifying Jesus in my life? Am I pointing people to my own self? Do I hide behind a facade of religion when in reality my heart is cold and indifferent? I'm always using my knowledge of the Bible to win and end arguments instead of to be humbled by the truth of God. Those are little signs. Guess what? You don't have to be a Pharisee to do any of that. You know how I know? Because I at times, have fit every one of these categories. 
And here's a newsflash, Christians. You have too. 